0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month we're going to hear In the Name of Bobby by Julio Cortazar, which was translated from the Spanish by Gregory Rabasa and published in The New Yorker in July of 1979.
1: Finally he said something like, at night it was all different. He spoke about some sort of black cloth that he couldn't get his hands or feet out of. Anyone can have nightmares like that, but it was a shame that Bobby should only have them about my sister, who made so many sacrifices for him.
0: The story was chosen by Ben Lerner, who's the author of seven books of fiction and poetry, including the novels 1004 and The Topeka School, which was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Hi, Ben.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: All right. So the last time we talked on the podcast, it was about a story by John Berger. And I'm wondering what made you pick a story by Julio Cortazar today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always liked Cortazar. I've always really liked how modular his stories are, like the way he plays with how things can happen in different orders. But I also think I probably chose this story because I have an eight-year-old And because I talk to my eight-year-old a lot about what she dreams, and so I felt a kind of eerie connection to this story and its strange exploration of the unconscious of a child.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that the story in the name of Bobby is, is typical of Cortazar's stories?
1: I think it's typical in the sense that it's strange. And it's typical in the sense that it's less about what happens in the story and more about the weird kind of black hole of primal forces that starts to take effect as a result of his strange writing. And I think that is true of a lot of his stories, that it's more about the, yeah, the field of force than the through line of linear development.
0: Yeah. And also about the supernatural creepiness
1: Yeah, there's a real creepiness that's kind of somewhere between the supernatural and the religious and the the Freudian. Uh
0: (laughs) I hope your daughter's dreams are not that way.
1: No, no. None of the disturbing dynamics of the story are operative in my family so far as I know. But there is a sense in which... You know, I talk to my kids all the time. I talk to them about their dreams, especially in the pandemic. I feel like I'm almost never out of their sight, but there are also always these like gulfs of mystery and incommunicability where you don't, you don't really know what's going on in there. This is a very frightening example of that, um, this story, but I I think that's often like a kind of wonderful and interesting thing about being a parent is that mystery.
0: Mm Mm-hmm is there something that you think listeners should be listening out for as they hear you read the story? It's not so much as you said about the plot. What is it about?
1: Well, I think like there's a lot of there's a lot of terror and a lot of unreliability in this story, which in a certain way seems like a kind of straightforward narrative and I think from the first paragraph on there are a lot of present absences like that Cortázar very quickly makes felt some of the key missing pieces so that in a very short story, it's not just what is said, but it's very much the intense presence of what's unsaid or unthought. Um, I mean, I think that's palpable when when one reads it. And it's part of why it, it can be a kind of memorable story, even though it's in many ways a fragment or a very short piece of fiction.
0: Mm hmm. Well, we'll talk some more after the story, and now here's Ben Lerner, reading In the Name of Bobby by Julio Cortazar, translated from the Spanish by Gregory Rabasa.
1: In the Name of Bobby. Yesterday was his eighth birthday. We had a fine party for him, and Bobby was happy with the wind-up train, the soccer ball, and the cake with candles. My sister had been afraid that at precisely this time he would come home from school with bad grades— but it was just the opposite. He'd done better in arithmetic and reading, and there was no reason to take his toys away. Quite the contrary. We told him to invite his friends, and he had Beto and Juanita. Mario Penzani came too, but he didn't stay long because his father was ill. My sister let them play in the yard until dusk, and Bobby broke in the ball, even though we were both afraid that he would knock over our plants in his enthusiasm. When it was time for orangeade and the cake with candles, we all sang happy birthday to him in a chorus and laughed a lot because everybody was happy, especially Bobby, and it seemed to me to be a waste of time keeping an eye on what there was nothing to keep an eye on. Just the same, I kept an eye on Bobby when he was distracted, trying to catch sight of the look that my sister doesn't seem to notice, but that upsets me so much. This time he looked at her that way only once, Just as my sister was lighting the candle, scarcely a second before he lowered his eyes and, like the well-brought-up child he is, said, the cake is very nice, Mama. And Juanita approved, too, and Mario Panzani. I had laid out the long knife for Bobby to cut the cake with, and at that moment especially, I kept an eye on him from the other end of the table. But Bobby was so happy with the cake that he hardly looked at my sister again and concentrated on the task of cutting small equal pieces and passing them around. You first, Mama, Bobby said, giving her a slice, and then Juanita and me, because ladies first. They immediately went out into the yard to continue playing, except for Mario Panzani, but first Bobby told my sister again that the cake was delicious, and he ran over to me and jumped up and put his arms around my neck and gave me one of his wet kisses. The train is wonderful, Auntie, he said, and that night he climbed up onto my lap to confide his great secret in me. I'm eight years old now, you know auntie. We went to bed rather late, but it was Saturday and Bobby could lull about like us until late in the morning. I was the last one to go to bed and first I busied myself tidying up the dining room and putting the chairs in place. The children had played Going to Jerusalem and other games which had turned the house upside down. I put away the long knife and before going to bed, I saw that my sister was already sleeping the sleep of the just. I went to Bobby's little room and looked at him. He was face down as he had always liked to be since he was an infant and had already thrown the blankets to the floor and had one leg buried in the pillow. If I had a son, I would let him sleep that way too, but why think about such things? I went to bed and didn't feel like reading. I may have done the wrong thing because sleep didn't come to me and I went through what I usually do at that hour when you lose your will and ideas, sleep out from all sides and seem to be true. Everything you think about is suddenly true and almost always horrible and there's no way to shake it off, not even by praying. I drank some water and sugar and waited, counting down from 300 backward, which is harder and makes sleep come. Just as I was about to fall asleep, I was seized by doubts about whether I'd put the knife away or whether it was still on the table. It was silly because I put everything away and I remembered that I'd put the knife in the bottom drawer of the cupboard, but just the same, I got up and of course it was there in the drawer mixed in with the other kitchen utensils. I don't know why, but I got a kind of urge to keep it in my bedroom. I even took it out for a moment, but that was already too much. I looked at myself in the mirror and made a face. That didn't make things any better. And then I poured myself a drink of anisette, even though it was imprudent, with my liver and all, and I sipped it in bed to help sleep come. From time to time, my sister's snoring could be heard, and Bobby, as always, was talking or moaning. Just as I was falling asleep, everything came back suddenly. The first time Bobby asked my sister why she was mean to him, and my sister, who is a saint, everybody says so, stood looking at him as if it were a joke and even laughed. But I, who was preparing the mate, remember that Bobby hadn't laughed. On the contrary, he was upset and wanted to know. At that time, he must have already been seven, and he always asked strange questions, like all children. I remember the day he asked me why trees were different from us and I in turn asked him why and Bobby said but auntie they cover themselves in summer and uncover themselves in winter and I stood there open mouthed because really that child they're all like that but after all and now my sister was looking at him puzzled she had never been mean to him she told him just strict a few times when he'd misbehaved or had been ill and had to do things he didn't like Juanita's mother and Mario Panzani's mother were also strict with their children when it was necessary, but Bobby kept on looking at her sadly and explained that it wasn't during the day that she was mean at night when he was asleep. The two of us were flabbergasted, and I think that it was I who began to explain to him that no one is to blame for what happens in dreams, that it must have been a nightmare, and that was all. There was no need to worry." That day Bobby didn't insist, he always accepted our explanations, and he wasn't a difficult child, but a few days later he awoke weeping and shouting, and when I got to his bed he hugged me and wouldn't speak. He just cried and cried, another nightmare surely, but at noontime he suddenly remembered and asked my sister again why she was so mean to him when he was asleep. This time my sister hugged him to her breast. Told him that he was too big now not to know the difference, and that if he kept on insisting about that, she was going to talk to Dr. Kaplan because he probably had worms or appendicitis and something would have to be done. I felt that Bobby was going to start crying and hastened to explain to him again about nightmares. He had to realize that nobody loved him as much as his mother, not even I, who loved him so much. And Bobby listened very seriously, drying a tear, and said, of course he knew, and got out of his chair to go kiss my sister, who didn't know what to do, and remained thoughtful, looking into space. That afternoon, I went to look for him in the yard, and I asked him to tell me, his aunt, because he could confide everything in me, the same as with his mother, and if he didn't want to tell her, he could tell me. You could see that he didn't want to talk. It was too much for him. But finally, he said something like, at night, it was all different. He spoke about some sort of black cloth that he couldn't get his hands or feet out of. Anyone can have nightmares like that. But it was a shame that Bobby should only have them about my sister, who made so many sacrifices for him. I told him that, and I repeated it. And he, of course, agreed. Right after that, my sister came down with pleurisy and I had to take care of things. Bobby was no trouble for me because small as he was, he could handle almost everything by himself. I remember that he would come in to see my sister and stay by the side of her bed without speaking, waiting for her to smile at him or to stroke his hair. And then he would go quietly out into the yard and play or into the living room to read. I didn't even have to tell him not to play the piano during that time even though he liked you very much. The first time I saw that he was sad, I explained to him that his mother was better now and that one of these days, she would get up for a while to take some sun. Bobby put on a strange expression and looked at me out of the corner of his eye. I don't know. The idea suddenly came to me and I asked him if he was having his nightmares again. He began to weep very quietly, hiding his face. Then he said he was. Why was his mother that way with him? "'That time I realized that he was afraid. "'When I lowered his hands to dry his face, "'I could see the fear, and it was hard for me to act indifferent "'and explain to him once more that they were only dreams. "'Don't say anything to her,' I told him. "'Remember, she's still weak, and it might have some effect on her.' "'Bobby nodded in silence. "'He had so much trust in me, "'but later on I came to think that he had taken me too literally, "'because not even when my sister was convalescing "'did he talk about it again.' I could sense it in him on some mornings when I would see him come out of his room with that lost expression and also because he spent all of his time with me hovering about in the kitchen. One or two times I couldn't take it anymore and spoke to him in the yard or when I was bathing him and he was always the same, making an effort not to cry, swallowing his words because his mother was that way with him at night but he wouldn't go beyond that. He was weeping too much. I explained again to Bobby who understood quite well that I didn't want my sister to find out because she was still weak from the pleurisy and it might affect her too much, but on the other hand, he could tell me anything. He would soon see that when he got a little older, he'd stop having those nightmares. It would be better, though, if he didn't eat so much bread at night. I was going to ask Dr. Kaplan if he might not need a laxative so he could sleep without any bad dreams, but I didn't, of course." It was difficult to talk about something like that with Dr. Kaplan, who had such a busy practice and wasn't about to waste his time. I don't know if I did the right thing or not, but little by little Bobby stopped worrying me so much. Sometimes I would see him in the morning with that slightly lost air and I would say to myself, probably again and then I would wait for him to come and confide in me, but Bobby would start to sketch or go to school without saying anything to me and would come home happy, and he was stronger and healthier each day and got the best grades. The last time was during the February heat wave. My sister was completely recovered and we lived life as usual. I don't know if she was aware that something was wrong, but I didn't want to say anything to her because I know her and I know that she's too sensitive, especially when it's a question of Bobby, even though I can remember when Bobby was small and my sister was still suffering from the shock of the divorce and all that, how hard it was for her to bear up when Bobby would cry or do some bit of mischief, and I had to take him out into the yard and wait for everything to calm down. That's what we answer for. Actually, I think that my sister didn't realize that sometimes Bobby would get up as if he were returning from a long trip with a lost face that lasted him until breakfast. When we were alone, I always waited for her to say something, but she didn't, and I thought it was bad to remind her of something that could only make her suffer. I imagined, rather, that one of those times Bobby would ask her again why she was mean to him, but Bobby also must have thought that he didn't have the right to do something like that. It was possible that he remembered my request and thought he would never have to talk about that to my sister anymore. Occasionally, I would get the feeling that I was the one who was inventing it all and would be certain that Bobby was no longer dreaming anything bad about his mother. He would have told me at once in order to console himself. But afterward, I would see on him that face from certain mornings and start to worry again. I decided it would be better for my sister not to be aware of anything, not even the first time that Bobby gave her the look. I was ironing, and from the door of the pantry, he looked at my sister in the kitchen, and I don't know how something like that can be explained, except that the iron almost put a hole in my blue nightgown. I took it off just in time. Bobby was still looking at my sister that way as she rolled dough to make meat tarts. When I asked him what he wanted... Just for the sake of saying something to him, he was startled and said he didn't want anything, that it was too hot outside to play ball. I don't know what tone I used to ask the question, but he repeated the explanation as if to convince me and went off to sketch in the parlor. My sister said that Bobby was quite dirty and she was going to give him a bath that afternoon, big as he was. He always forgot to wash his feet and behind his ears. In the end, I was the one who bathed him, because my sister still got tired in the afternoon, and while I was soaping him in the bathtub and he was playing with the plastic duck that he refused to let go of, I got up the courage to ask him if he was sleeping better these days. More or less, he told me, after a moment dedicated to making the duck swim. What do you mean, more or less? Are you dreaming ugly things or not? "'The other night I did,' Bobby said, "'sinking the duck and holding it under the water. "'Did you tell your mother?' "'No, not her. She... "'He didn't give me time for anything. "'Soaped up and all, he threw himself on top of me "'and hugged me, weeping, trembling, making me miserable "'while I tried to push him off, "'and his body slipped between my fingers "'until he dropped into a sitting position in the bathtub "'and covered his face with his hands, weeping and shouting.' My sister came running and thought Bobby had slipped and hurt himself somewhere, but he said no with his head, stopped crying with an effort that wrinkled up his face and stood up in the bathtub so that we could see that nothing had happened to him, refusing to speak, naked, soapy, and so alone in his held-in weeping that neither my sister nor I could calm him down, even though we brought towels and caresses and promises." After that, I always looked for a chance to build up Bobby's confidence without his realizing that I was trying to make him talk. But weeks passed and he never tried to tell me anything. When I spotted something in his face now, he would go away immediately or embrace me and ask for some candy or permission to go to the corner with Juanita and Mario Panzani. He never asked my sister for anything. He was very attentive toward her, as she was basically still in rather delicate health and she didn't worry too much about taking care of him because I was always there first and Bobby would accept anything from me, even what was most disagreeable, when it was necessary. So my sister never came to be aware of what I had seen immediately. His way of looking at her like that for a moment, of remaining in the doorway looking at her until I became aware of it and then he would quickly lower his eyes or start running or jumping. The business of the knife was just by chance. I was changing the paper on the pantry shelves and had taken all the dishes down. I didn't realize that Bobby had come in until I turned around to cut another strip of paper and saw him looking at the longest knife. He became distracted right away or didn't want me to notice, but I already knew that way of looking he had, and I don't know. It's stupid to think such things, but it all came over me like a chill, almost an icy wind in that overheated pantry. I was unable to say anything to him, but at night I thought of how Bobby had stopped asking my sister why she was mean to him. Only at times would he look at her as he had looked at the long knife, that different look. It might have been just chance, of course, but I didn't like it during the following week when I saw the same face on him precisely while I was cutting the bread with the long knife and my sister was explaining to Bobby that it was time now for him to learn to shine his own shoes. Yes, Mama, Bobby said, paying attention only to what I was doing to the bread, accompanying every movement of the knife with his eyes and swaying in his chair, almost as if he were cutting the bread himself. He was probably thinking about the shoes and moving as if he were shining them. My sister certainly thought that because Bobby was so obedient and so good. At night, I wondered whether I shouldn't talk to my sister, but what was I going to tell her since nothing was happening and Bobby was getting the best grades in his class and things like that, except that I couldn't sleep because suddenly everything came together again It was like a mass that grew thicker and then the fear, impossible to know of what, because Bobby and my sister were already asleep and they could be heard moving or sighing from time to time. They were sleeping so well, much better than I, lying there thinking all night long. And of course, I finally sought out Bobby in the garden after I saw him look at my sister that way again, and I asked him to help me transplant a mastic, and we talked about lots of things, and he confided in me that Juanita had a sister who was engaged. Naturally, she's big now, I told him. Look, go get me the long knife from the kitchen so we can cut these raffias. He ran off as always because there was no one better than he for doing what I wanted, and I remained looking toward the house, waiting for him to come back, thinking I really should have asked him about the dreams before sending him for the knife, just to be sure. When he came back, walking very slowly, as if wading through the siesta-time atmosphere in order to take longer, I saw that he had picked out one of the short knives, even though I had left the long one in plain view, because I wanted to be sure that he would see it as soon as he opened the cupboard drawer." This one is no good, I told him. It was hard for me to speak. It was stupid with someone as small and innocent as Bobby, but I couldn't look him in the eye. I only felt the shove when he threw himself into my arms, letting go of the knife and pressing himself against me, pressing himself so much against me and weeping. I think that at that moment, I saw something that must have been his last nightmare. I couldn't ask him, But I think that I saw what he had dreamt the last time before he stopped having the nightmares, and yet there was that way of looking at my sister, of looking at the long knife.
0: That was Ben Lerner, reading In the Name of Bobby by Julio Cortazar, translated from the Spanish by Gregory Rabasa. The story appeared in The New Yorker in July of 1979 and was included in the collection A Change of Light and Other Stories, which was published by Knopf in 1980.
2: At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: So, Ben, in that first paragraph, basically, of the story... We get a sense that whatever is happening in Bobby's dreams or isn't happening in Bobby's dreams, he lives a kind of restricted life for a child. There's mention made of taking away his toys if he gets bad grades. There's this idea that it's some kind of special privilege for him to be able to kick a soccer ball around in -hmm. in his own yard in case he knocks over some plants. It doesn't feel like a happy-go-lucky environment to me. Do you think that's the time period of the story, or do you think that's specific to Bobby?
1: I think it's Bobby in that environment because, I mean, there's a lot of fear. There's my sister had been afraid. We were both afraid. A look that upsets me so much. There's a father that's ill. I mean, I think there's a lot of terror that doesn't seem equal just to the birthday party that's already present in that first paragraph. And also already present in the title, right, in the name of Bobby it has a, what is it called? The Trinitarian formulation, the name of the father and the spirit. And the, so it already has a heaviness and a gravity and already signals the importance of the kind of missing father, I think. And this other kid whose father was ill. So mm-hmm. I, I just think it already like weighs a ton and isn't just about kind of overprotective guardians or um, a lot of surveillance for for a kid that they want to be high-achieving. It seems like there's all kinds of terror that the aunt who's narrating the story isn't totally in control of already.
0: Yeah. How much of that terror do you think is coming, in a sense, from Bobby, and how much is created in the aunt's mind? You know, she's constantly keeping this eagle eye on him, watching for his strange look, but his mother doesn't seem to notice it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you're right that that's like one of the major questions in the story. And there are a lot of disconcerting signals about the aunt's kind of reliability or motivations. I mean, there's that moment when she says something like, if I had a son, I would let him sleep that way. And there's this kind of question about, you know, the longed for son and, you know, what are the desires or resentments? that she's projecting. And I think one of the scary things about this story is that it's hard to tell if it's Bobby's obsession with the knife or the aunt's. And I think it maybe mm. gets to be more and more the aunt's. And then there's also her, I mean, I don't mean this necessarily in a like a sexually inappropriate way, but just her concern and regulation of the body from what he's eating to the scene where they're bathing him There's on the one hand, there's so much surveillance and bodily closeness with Bobby. And then on the other hand, it all seems filtered through her own concerns. And then, of course, there's just so much missing information, like what's her relationship with the missing father or what's her relationship with the sister really like, even though in the narrative, she positions herself in a caretaking role. And then, of course... The aunt has that thing about, you know, very early on in the story about, about the time of night when everything is suddenly true, everything you think about is suddenly true, that where she has a kind of horror of her own magical thinking that's childlike and also an affliction of fiction writers. It's another moment where the story gestures towards the idea that this could be really a series of her projections of desires and terrors and that Bobby's crumpling and weeping in her presence is in part a response to that and not his own relationship with his mom.
0: Yeah. I mean, he seems to go to his aunt very willingly and climb in her lap and, and weep on her repeatedly. Yeah. So I don't get the sense that he sees her as the threat or else perhaps he sees her as his kind of partner in, in crime and partner in fear I mean, do you get the sense that she's reassuring for him?
1: I get this. I, I, I think the answer is I don't know. And part of the power of the story is I can't tell when Bobby is being taken care of or when he's administering care. You know, I can't tell when he's trying to make the aunt feel loved and when he's receiving love from the aunt and, you know, or, or both at once. And we don't really know again, like what Bobby's compensating for with the kind of missing father who's everywhere and nowhere in the story. So I think, yeah, I think it's really hard to know. I think the end of the story, which gets more confusing for me as I read it, as opposed to less, like one of the strange things is the aunt seems to really be setting up a scene where Bobby's gonna go get the knife, right? And then he doesn't. And that, in that instance, she really seems to be directing. Like she, she, she seems consciously or not to be kind of creating the conditions she most fears, which um, does seem to scare him or upset him.
0: I feel as though she's doing that throughout the story. You know, in that first scene, she's put out the long knife for him to cut the cake with. Um, yeah. She's repeatedly putting it in his presence And at the same time, as you said, she's obsessed with it, too. She wants to take it to bed with her, (laughs) you know. Yeah. (laughs) To do what? Um, Who knows? But she, at the end of the story, she's put it out for him. She's put it where he will see it. And she actually forces him to go and get it. What do you think the motivation is there? Is she trying to create not just drama but an actual attack with this knife? Is she trying to see if she can trust him? It's a test.
1: I, I I think she thinks it's the last thing and I think the story suggests it's like all of those things you know that she she's the last person we should trust about her motivations and in a way she's in a kind of driven dreamlike state around the knife And I mean another weird thing about the end of the story is the way that the weird drama of making him go and get the knife, is also like in jammed with his reporting this thing about the sibling of a friend getting married or engaged, I think. And so something like, yeah, well, of course they're getting engaged. They're grown up. And so it's also this moment of where one in the world of the story might leave the family to make a family, mm-hmm. this kind of like threshold of sexual maturity or whatever. And there's something even more disconcerting about having that drama of the knife come right after Bobby for unclear reasons has kind of shared this information about separation. So they're kind of obvious and maybe too loud ways to see the knife as like a phallic symbol or in Freudian terms as a sign of some kind of castration or whatever. But there's also just, I mean, I think what makes the story powerful is not that it's a knife and what the the knife symbolizes, but that all these strange dramas in the family are all betraying this kind of Anxiety about separation and the separation that's already happened with the father, the notion of sacrifice that's in the title, like who has to be sacrificed to protect whom? Is, it, is Bobby not going to be able to grow up? That has to be sacrificed to keep the kind of matrilineal line intact.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and the idea that she sends him for a long knife and he comes back with a short knife, a sort of perhaps refusal of adulthood on yes. his part. I feel, that, you know, when you get that knife in the first paragraph, it's, you know, it's like the gun that has to go off before the end of the story. Um, yeah. And does it go off?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I was thinking about, right, like Chekhov's gun and Cortazar's knife, right? Yeah. And then the, yeah. I mean, I, I really don't know. I, I Like, I think that the story tries hard to keep these things as questions. But I do think that the the gun that goes off for me is, is the way that the aunt is so clearly trying to stage the encounter that she fears. And I think it strongly you know, like militates towards a reading that the psychological trouble and complexity in this story is more the aunt's than it is Bobby's or that what he's reacting to is a drama between the grownups Um, as opposed to him threatening the mother through some structure of unconscious fascination or or whatever. But what makes it powerful in the story is how dreamlike it becomes, right? Where it's very unclear who's responsible for what. And I think this idea that Bobby has or that she says Bobby has of being mistreated in dreams is a really scary and rich idea for me. This idea that someone is responsible for how they behave in your dream. It's such a fiction writer idea, too, that your fabulation still has implications for like your real relationships. I mean, in my own like weird psychic patterning, the story that was published in the year of my birth or whatever, as I remember, I used to have these dreams where my brother would make fun of me or like trick me out of a baseball card or whatever. And I remember these fights with my brother where I was accusing him of things he had done in a dream. And he was like, you can't be mad at me about something that happened in a dream. And I I was like really confused as a little kid because I was like, well, I'm not responsible for it. Like I didn't choose <laughs> to dream it. And I had traces of the bad feeling or whatever in the waking state. And that kind of permeable boundary between sleep and waking to me seems so related to the boundary between fact and fiction. Cortázar thinks he's doing one thing in the story and he's also Mm -hmm. revealing in all kinds of ways we can't know about, like his own preoccupations and drivenness and unconscious desires or fears.
0: Yeah, yeah. And of course he was raised by his mother and his aunt and his father left when he was a young child, yeah. Exactly. I suppose I feel the story leaves a little bit open the idea of whether this is in fact happening in Bobby's dreams. I mean, he doesn't really suggest that Mother's actually torturing Bobby in the night, but he does suggest that these might not be dreams. Right. I mean, I suppose you can read it either way.
1: Yeah, I think it's impossible not to wonder what's being expressed, especially with the hypervigilance you mentioned in the first paragraph, like, you know, do they have a reason to be particularly protective based upon experience that isn't in the story? Again, like some of the focus on Bobby's body, like in the bathing scene, which I I don't mean to exaggerate that. Like, I don't think it's a story in which one is supposed to like infer that there's some kind of boundary violation, but there's just no way not to wonder about what the real meanness is or thing that Bobby has suffered at someone's hands that's getting expressed in the form of the dream. And, mm-hmm. and I don't really think it's answerable in the story, but I think it's scary and it's there.
0: Right, and the image of the black cloth that he somehow can't get his hands or feet out of, which in my mind ties together with the aunt saying, well, if I had a son, I'd let him sleep this way because sleeping that way, he's kicked everything off. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of sticking himself out of the covers or he's got the blanket on the floor. There's a sense that he's cast off whatever was binding him, but maybe inappropriately, mm-hmm. you know, she would let her son do this, but this boy isn't allowed
1: to do it. I think that's right. And then I think what happens invariably in the story as we read it and like as we discuss it is that we, we end up in a hall of mirrors or projections where it gets very difficult to know like what's in the story and what we bring to the story in a way that amplifies the power of the story because it starts to kind of evoke all sorts of desires and fears that independent of any particular experience are just built into family separation dream fiction but yeah I think it really is a frightening story and I think it's almost more troubling to me because it's very hard to tell if there have been Transgressions of real significance, or if this is just like the psychological complexity of getting older in this circumstance—it's just like the boy trying to figure out his relationship to these women in the family. The aunts worried about his sister. The aunt maybe wishes she was a mother and not just an aunt. And there's a missing father, and we don't know what that's about. You know, they—they they could all just be doing their best, <laughs> right? Right. And and right. it could still produce this kind of horrifying story, or there could be real. And the story gives us plenty of reason to believe that there could be real transgression and trauma. But mm-hmm. it's almost like that for me, the story is, is almost more powerful because of the undecidability between like repressed traumatic event and this really kind of dark um, field of forces.
0: Right. And a lot centers around that, the very ending, um, which you said you find more confusing the more you reread it. Me too. Uh, you know, what do we think has happened? There's this moment he runs back out with the short knife, or he he actually doesn't run, he kind of slinks out with the wrong knife, throws himself in his aunt's arms, weeping once again, and she thinks she sees something from his nightmare, or from his last nightmare. What do you think she's seeing?
1: I mean, you know, to a certain degree, she's seeing the whole time her fantasy that he's going to, like, kill his mother. I think to a certain degree, she thinks she's getting closer and closer to the reality of this, like that he's going to do a kind of violence to his mom. But again, it it seems to be more and more her fantasy to me and even her like seeing it and thinking she's seeing it in the end just seems to be that she's like more vividly experiencing her own, you know, antagonism. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, there's like an artifact of translation because I'm sure in the Spanish mean is not the word. Right. But mean and meaning kept getting confused for me in the story. Like just what does the mother mean? Like the mother is mean to him or the mother means something for him. And this question of what the mother means for both of them, which again is just produced by the weird dream that translation is. That's surely not in the Spanish, but—but. But, I kept feeling that too. Like both Bobby and the aunt seem to share an anxiety and a drivenness around the mother who we kind of hear from the least and know the least in the story. But I don't know. I mean, the pleasurable part of the story as a work of art for me is also this way that the kind of magical thinking that everyone participates in is very related to the kind of experience of fiction making. Like when I was a kid and I would talk to my parents about my dreams, like I would always have this moment. I mean, they're both shrinks too. So they're always asking me about my dreams. (laughs) There would be this moment where I would be telling them what I dreamt and I would kind of like, you know how the dream falls apart as you're like talking about it, it kind of recedes, but I would like go on. I would Mm -hmm. kind of, I would just start making it up. And I knew that I was making it up. I mean, I knew I was lying kind of, but it also felt like remembering. And mm-hmm. that idea of making something up in a way that feels like remembering and that idea of being suspended between memory and fabrication that's so disconcerting in this story is also like deep and rich and about fiction making for me.
0: Yeah, what's interesting here is it's not Bobby who's the storyteller, it's the aunt. You know, Bobby never tells a story. He doesn't say anything really. He says what he's supposed to say like a good boy. Yeah. And other than that, he just cries. Other than saying, "Why are you mean to me?" <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I looked right. at the Spanish very quickly. I, I feel as though the the word was, you know, malos or something with based on m-a-l as the root, right? Which would be bad right. Um, right. in English. But you know, who even knows what the child means in his choice of words if we want to totally. see it that way.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, I think with the artifacts of translation and a story like this, like part of what makes it scary, but also kind of propulsive is I just think it's just really at the root of language and fabrication and identity and separation and all the processes of kind of growing up or failing to grow up or anxiety about growing up. I mean, again, it's like the Halloween version of this. It's a scary story. But I do think Cortázar generally is very good at making us feel how fiction-making isn't just aesthetic play. Well, it's certainly that. It's also the way people have identities and function in the world. Bobby, for example, to get out of the dynamic that this story horrifyingly depicts is gonna have to figure out a way to tell his own story or make his own fictions in order to separate from the aunt's drivenness and fantasy, like whatever its motivation is.
0: Do you think it's possible to read that ending as though Bobby has killed his mother with the long knife?
1: Yeah, I do think it's possible and that he's been put up to it by the aunt. I mean, it's a, one of the funny things about this story is that I think like I almost wish it wasn't a knife, you know, like I like I almost wish it was something that was not so easy to incorporate into this kind of like symbolic economy of. <laughs> of violence and castration or the phallus or all that stuff. There could be a quieter object at its center or whatever. (laughs) But even though there's kind of a reading where spectacular violence has taken place and the the extreme things have happened, it's almost like the extremity of the event or that reading is kind of less interesting than the indeterminacy, the way that Mm -hmm. the story kind of works even if nothing happened. I think there is totally a reading in which this is like a story of a murder. And there are like many different versions of that murder that you could imagine, but it could very well be that like, Bobby has been used to sacrifice the mother in this violent way at the end and that there's a dead body in the house. Like that is totally available in the story. And then it's also somehow equally scary a story if that's not what's happened, if like Mm -hmm. nothing's Mm -hmm. happened. And I think that's like a facet of Cortázar's art and and even linked to the modularity, right, of like hopscotch, you know, that novel where you can read it in all these different orders and that there are these different combinations, like it could have happened this way, but it could also have happened that way. And that there are drives and tensions and violences of a very subtle sort, even if the more gothic horror is just a projection of somebody's fantasy.
0: yeah. I mean, structurally, this story is really interesting. It's a kind of Groundhog Day. You keep getting the same thing. You get a scene in which there's a knife, the aunt is watching, and it ends with Bobby weeping. Um, totally. And you you get it over and over again. And it seems something is different in the last scene, but the only thing that's actually explicitly different is that the aunt feels she sees something. Perhaps she's absorbed some part of Bobby's mind and his dream and maybe that was the final goal of the story was to kind of meld these two characters.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean, but I also think like what you said about the groundhog day thing, like I think he's really I mean, I keep using the word modularity. I don't know if that's the right word for it that you could like move the sections around mm-hmm. and have the same Story. But I think that that aspect of his writing is really powerful around a story so caught up in the unconscious and drivenness and repetition. Because, like, part of why I say it's like a black hole of primal forces is that it seems it seems like in a black hole, I don't understand black holes at all. I should probably stop with the interstellar (laughs) metaphor. But like, I just, I mean, you know how like time like is supposed to be bent around it, where like time Mm -hmm. starts to break down in the black hole. Like it's a similar way, you know, that's how people talk about trauma. That's also like how a lot of great artists in non-traumatic ways have talked about childhood, you know, that it recurs, that the past erupts in the present. So I think that that modularity or the way things can be reordered is really crucial to the effect of a story that's so much about drivenness. You know, what's what's driving, what's driving the dream so that the dream recurs? What's driving mm-hmm. the aunt to keep creating these scenes with the knife? And so the way that we repeat things in an effort to master them, thematically, the way that that interacts with this kind of modularity of Cortázar's art, I think is... Is powerful and weird, but I think you're right that in the specific ending, there is the clearest synthesis of the aunt and Bobby, like the, the clearest moment where they're kind of collaborating, or maybe Bobby's refusing to collaborate for the first time, you know, getting the wrong knife or whatever. But that in a way, you can read it backwards. You can start with mm-hmm. that section and you can end up at the birthday party and it's still the same story.
0: Yeah, you could also end it with the idea that perhaps the aunt has killed the mother and yeah. sent Bobby in to, to witness that. I mean, I also find you, you mentioned the title earlier. seems as though something has been done in Bobby's name. You know, there's something being said in Bobby's name. Mm-hmm. But perhaps that also captures the idea that the aunt is attributing these things to Bobby that aren't actually his own
1: yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good reading of the title. And also, you know, I mean, because of the religious overtones of the title and all that sacrifice, one also imagines, I mean the mother, maybe the mother's doing something mean or maybe the mother is supposed to be identified with a kind of saintliness or a, a kind of a Madonna figure and the like like all the mundane relationships are also charged with like mm-hmm. this metaphysical, significance that's quite disturbing but I like what you're saying about the kind of grammatical structure of the title like something has to be done in that name and what is right. what has been done and then I think that that does that does suggest this like read like that the murder could be done in the name a sacrifice could have taken place in the name right that blood mm-hmm. is being spilled although it's also interesting to think about like religious ritual where part of what's supposed to be happening in the Trinitarian formulation I mean, I'm now, I've talked about black holes about which I know nothing and I'm like a Jew who doesn't, I don't, I don't really know anything about this either, but the fascinating ritual of substituting, you know, wafer for body and wine for, right. for blood, right? right? So that you have a ritual that's substituting for a kind of violence or a kind of violent history. And so I think, again, it's really unclear about the degree to which what's happening in this trinity of mm-hmm. the mother and the aunt and the son is symbolic the violence is symbolic the knife is symbolic and it's substituting maybe for some other violence or is it really happening and is the, is the mother is there a dead body in the house while they're in the garden
0: yeah you just made me think of the line where she says uh, he's been eating too much bread at bedtime <laughs> and oh, yeah. that's what's causing the knife that's right <laughs> um, taking that's right, yeah. his communion bread at night yeah. Um, a lot of Cortez's work was, at least on some level, political. Do you think there's a political context for this story or purely humanist?
1: That's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know enough about the history of this story or, or the history of Argentina, like to kind of to kind of know the ways that this might be interacting with the kind of immediate political context. I do think, I mean, this is kind of dodging one sense of politics, but kind of moving towards another. I mean, in part, because I've just been reading some Jacqueline Rose stuff recently about like mothers and motherhood. I just like, I just kind of read it with like, the mother is this figure and this dynamic on whom like all desire and all rage is kind of projected. I think that there's a like, I don't know about Cortazar's intentions around the kind of gender politics of the story, mm. but i I was reading it in a kind of immediate relation to what some of like Jackie Rose's writing about the figure of the mother and the culture. And I was thinking about just what it kind of says about the impossible position of being put on both like a pedestal and taken care of. And then also you're such a strong symbolic figure that you're in trouble because of what you've done in dreams. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I think I don't I don't know enough really about the story's kind of like relationship with a more immediate political yeah. context.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean the only thing that stands out for me is the missing fathers, you know, the yeah. one who's missing, one who's really ill. And this idea that in this family, in this trinity, the, the aunt is standing in for the father in a sense. And yet her role is, it's defined by her, it's well defined by her. She's the caretaker. She takes care of the boy because the mother is ill or too weak. But uh, what she should be doing and her relationship to this child are very ambiguous.
1: Yeah. And part of why it's hard to answer the question about the politics of the story is that you get the sense of this from the first paragraph on, as you mentioned, that although there is reference to the doctors and the school, like the doctors, they're going to kind of punitively consult if he doesn't get it together, that are going to like give him laxatives or whatever, and the mention of grades. Mm hmm. And the three names of like friends, you know, that are kind of repeated as if those are the only people let into the circle. There's a sense of like a really isolated family unit, like a kind of horrifyingly isolated. Like you don't have the sense that anybody ever goes into that house unless it's like a doctor that's summoned. I mean, it's it's a very claustrophobic story. And like even the outside is just the garden. You never get beyond yeah. the garden. And so it's very difficult to say like what this family's relation is to the broader world, and yet the father has disappeared into that world into some mm-hmm. sense.
0: Yeah. It's also interesting to me that that Cortázar was a translator of Edgar Allan Poe, because you hmm. can feel mm-hmm. a little bit of that here.
1: Yeah. I think. Definitely. And like in Poe, for me, when Poe is very scary, he's also often very funny. But when, but when he's <laughs> very scary, it's often it's the environment. It's not it's not just like the reveal or whatever. It's the kind of hothouse environment yeah. Yeah. Um, or like that thing I was calling a field of force. And I, th- I think that the connection with Poe is a good one. That's also I've never thought about that. Like, you know, Poe has that crazy essay about writing The Raven, where he claims that he, like that first he chose all the sounds, that he was like, well, I wanted like the O sounds, you know, and never more or whatever. So like, I then I, like, I needed someone to say the word. And so I made up this bird and like, he, so he, mm-hmm. he claims to have back formed the poem, this long narrative poem, right? The most famous narrative poem, he supposedly like back formed it just according to sound, <laughs> yeah. which I, I can't imagine is actually true. But but anyway, it, it's interesting to think about Poe's like idea of composition and this modularity in Cortazar, mm-hmm. where like it doesn't seem to be about a linear development of the plot. It seems to be to be about repetition, if if not of sound, repetition of motif and of scene
0: yeah, and of
1: image, yeah, and of image. I, mean, I don't know anything about Cortazar's actual compositional process, but you could like imagine him saying like, "Well, I had this knife." I wanted to do this thing with the knife, or I had this idea about the dream, or the and then kind of building up these little islands of tension around it, and then playing with with the order in a way that's kind of mm-hmm. not dissimilar to to Poe's claim about how he he wrote some of his poems. Although again, I just as a writer, it's so hard to imagine that's actually what he did. <laughs> it's probably you know it's a fiction. It's another great Poe fiction, probably.
0: Can you imagine? Uh- a sequel in which Bobby goes on to live a happy life? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, th- I I mean, yeah, like I can imagine I can imagine a sequel in which Bobby just like, you know, I mean, and, and where Bobby goes off to have a happy life, he doesn't remember the knife, right? Like when he, goes, <laughs> exactly. we, when, he, when he goes off to have a happy life, it turns out this was just like something that his aunt, a drama she was going through that she didn't process with him after the, the story and But I mean, I do think there's a version in which this is quite harmless, like much Mm -hmm. more harmless than it seems, which is what also makes it so scary because the mom could be dead and he could have just, you know, (laughs) but but, so I do think there's a a version that's, that's harmless. And I think the hope for like, you know, Bobby's happy life or the mother being alive or whatever and the aunt getting it together is precisely that Cortázar is very unsettling but also unsettling means nothing seems settled in any clearly disastrous way, right? It's also, it also could be that new stories and new dynamics would, would evolve out of this, mm-hmm. this, this weird fiction. But I think in Cortaza, like for most writers, like there is no, you never leave childhood behind. So whatever happens to Bobby, or maybe Bobby is Cortaza, right? Like, and maybe mm-hmm. the happy life is the fact that that Bobby is going to gain mastery would be the wrong word, but gain some power over fiction making and be able to tell mm-hmm. his own stories as, as Julio Cortaza or as someone else.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ben.
1: Yeah, thank you. I like talking about it with you.
0: Julio Cortazar, who died in 1984, was an Argentine essayist, poet, and fiction writer whose works include the novel Hopscotch and the collections Bestiary, Blow Up, and Other Stories, and A Change of Light. Ben Lerner, who was made a MacArthur Foundation Fellow in 2015, has published four poetry collections and three novels, Leaving Atocha Station, 10.04, and The Topeka School, which was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He's been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 2012. You can download more than 170 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treesman. Thanks for listening.